The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, new fiction by DJ Butler and part two of our discussion with Charles E. Gannon. Plus, we continue our ongoing audiobook serialization of Timothy Zahn's Cobra, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour. It's a pleasure to have you along. I am Bain Associate Editor and your podcast host, David F. Shirod. Today, we bring you part two of Griffin Barber's discussion with Charles E. Gannon about Gannon's latest novel, Into the Vortex. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, be sure to check it out at Bain.com, where you can find a complete archive of all our past podcast episodes. And now, the news. Head over to Bain.com and check out this month's free short story, The Quail Runs, by DJ Butler. This story is set in the same universe as the new release. Head over to Bain.com and check out this month's free short story, The Quail Runs, by DJ Butler. This story is set in the same universe as the newly released Time Trials, by M.A. Rothman and Butler. The story follows what happens when a young man, his uncle, and his younger brother travel into the wilderness in search of a spirit to heal his brother's twisted legs. There, they find that perhaps all is not what it seems. Time Trials is available now in hardcover and ebook, and The Quail Runs is available free to read at Bain.com. And that's it for the news. Yeah. So the characters in the Vortex are seeking answers to uh, uh, some big questions about the world they live in and the accepted theories of what happened in their shared past. I couldn't help uh, thinking this should be the preferred mode of operation for us all, that we seek the underlying answers to why things are as they are. But I also saw the danger in uh, the questions they asked brought upon the characters. Uh, can you unpack some of that theme for us that, you know, the the questions we ask can be uh, unsettling to people. So there's a, um, I, I don't know. If, if it was a theologian professional who wrote this at some point, um, but uh, the, the, the phrase, the, the 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 question was posed: Would you, what would you prefer if you had the choice, nudge or blow? That's a really interesting. I'm going to ask you to pause here for a second. So I don't know if it was a theologian, a philosopher, or a professional liar like a writer like myself who said this or or set up this um, this sort of conundrum, uh, which and it doesn't sound like it, but if you think about it, I, I think a lot of people will find it so. And the term was either "What would you prefer, truth or bliss?" Some I've seen it sometimes as knowledge or bliss, and right. I think that's. Um, when you're talking about unpacking it, you know, because, oh, the search for knowledge, that's a good thing, which is sort of the thing that I think you're saying. And also knowledge is power, right? 
Well, yes, but you know, wishing for knowledge comes into that that heading of be careful what you wish for, you just might get it. Right. Because what we have knowledge of constrains our life. And it uh, it perhaps may, um, you know, what what if, for instance, you knew uh, that there that there was a single deity, it's a, a, a monotheistic cosmos. And if you don't do everything, including all of the dietary things, you are now doomed to hell and there's nothing you can do about it and the end. Or on the other side, the sort of the Nietzschean moment, which is, you know, he didn't, when he said God is dead, it's basically saying humanity doesn't need God anymore to explain all the things that it observes. But it's it's those those two things. But the the certainty of either one is a um, is a is a a powerful and not necessarily joy inducing mode. So there's a little bit of the matrix, I think, in that question. Uh, you know, do you take do you take the pill? I forget the colors. Um, Blue pill and red pill. You know, yeah, but which is which? That's what I forget. Uh, the red pill is the one is the dangerous one. I think. Is yeah, the one that is. Okay, so the, the red pill is reality, and the black pill is whatever you like, right. um, bliss, if you will. And so this is a lot of my, and this is a theme which I, I know people have definitely seen, probably across my work. Um, it's not, it's by no means restrictive to this one, but I get to ask different kinds of questions in a fantasy because, um, I would say in a science fiction work unless you are going to suggest innately that a questions of deity can be answered decisively and that it's knowable uh questions of cosm true cosmology are a little bit out of its boundary it's sort of limited to ontology the nature of being right. um and maybe the nature of the cosmos but um you know this is so this gives me an opportunity to ask all sorts of questions that set that sort of fall outside of the realm of what it is probably possible to know when the limits are constrained by a true science fictional paradigm right um so this is and and one of the things that i also try to suggest here and and this is um this also shows up in both but i think it's actually showing up even more profoundly at this stage in in um, the Vortex of World series, which is the more knowledge you get, the more hazard it may represent. What do you know? Who knows that you know it? And then you have the other problem. Unless you know all of the significances of having that knowledge, you have no way to measure the top threshold of just how much trouble you bought. Right possessing it and uh, and that's for me also a very interesting question because it becomes it, it the process doesn't end and you become more accustomed to it i think you become perhaps more courageous be only because you're accustomed to the hazard because the hazard is actually increasing yeah the, it's interesting because the the one of the the most dangerous period is to be a police officer is the I think it's the fourth to the sixth year. So, and because you think, you know, and you've had some experience, you get sloppy and don't conform to either your training 
or rigid, you know, mostly to your training, but also to your experience uh, in that you, you think, you know, because you know this much (laughs) and what you really need to make sure, you know, is that much. (laughs) Um, So that's pretty fascinating for me. It was was something I was hoping you were going to approach because it it was something that I kind of keyed on when I was reading uh, into the vortex. Um, So there's, and just to bring it out, I would also think in terms of deep undercover work, because mm. because you know it's one of the things that I find uh, sometimes lacking or maybe simplistic in in certain fantasy books is you either have it's too often it boils down to the big bad and right. you know the big good or the under uh, the underdog good, and the thing is I've never observed a situation where there's power that doesn't create essentially a downstream tree of other ambitious people whether that's good or bad and the thing is the deeper you go into what i'm going to call protected knowledge you have no idea how high that goes i think clancy did that very well a couple of times you know it's like wait a minute i'm i'm the people who are killing me are the same people i'm working for what you know and it's that sort of thing that to me is uh, is also of great interest and um I'm having fun with it in the series. Cool. So uh, there are lots of ruins and historic places introduced into the vortex and mention of cataclysms. Yes, multiple cataclysms. Uh, Were you thinking of any particular terrestrial ruins or ancient cultures as you created the varied settings of Into the Vortex? Uh, Sometimes. Um, uh, Probably the ones that well, now this is an interesting thing because you're talking about two different worlds. Right. Um, there's the world that everybody knows from the first book, and then there's a world. <laughs> put a right. put a asterisk next to that. That um, that we also uh, another one that we encounter, and the ruins there are um, uh, the difference, if you will, between the cataclysms. Is that in in um, like on Earth? You know, you could say, "Oh my gosh, we lost so much when the Library of Alexandria burned, and we and and we know so little about the Greeks." But we actually know a great deal of what happened. We lose we we lose track in a lot of in a lot of places in the Dark Ages. Although that's a very Western perspective, because other places were doing just fine, recording very detailed histories about the West, right. which actually the West could do itself a favor with because they were trading with the West. So it'd be kind of interesting to, to really dig into their merchants' records to see what happened to the West's ability to buy and what it bought and what it didn't. But no, that really, it hasn't happened yet or it hasn't titrated, I think, into scholarship as much as it might. But the at least other Western scholarship, yeah. Right, exactly yeah. so. Yeah. Um but but the first world, the world of Ardonk, is a little bit like that world. Um, there there are definitely a lot of a lot of um, a lot of breakpoints, but you kind of have to go back to. Um, they have the equivalent of a reach back to you know, where a lot of the history in in the areas the the sort of the Mediterranean basin, if you will, Sumer 
and Assyria and, and even Phoenicia. And you go back and you, you know, a lot of that stuff is lost. Um, and, but it's there and we know things about it. We can actually still see some records from it. And they have that same sort of, you know, slow mist. Um, and we don't know what happened. You know, we, we know, we know there must've been at least cataclysmic um, events in one way or another. Uh, we, we know that there was huge temperature change. I'm, I'm not trying to get into a debate here. We just know there was a huge temperature change uh, called the Ice Age. And then obviously it let go. And these were, these were kind of, for all we know, there were growing, um, I wouldn't want to say cities, but, but if you will, stone and possibly copper capable cultures, which could have been entirely and entirely erased by both the weather and the events of those times but you have to go back that far right. in the case of the other world which is called kind of inaccurately histos um they hit a point within a millennia where history almost all history got obliterated right purposely obliterated and those are the sorts of ruins that are more like the easter island ruins i don't mean they resemble it but they have to, you look at these things you just, say just a mystery just a flat out mystery yeah how, you know the, the we can't even be sure the rocks came from here but then how did they move it i mean you know because everything we know about about navigation across those seas and, and the diff that oh huge stretch of water and that then somebody is there long enough to decide to put up these things that we don't see in any of the logical sort of origin points for these Polynesian peoples, you know, and, and you, you sort of say, and I'm using the Micronesian peoples and you sort of look at it and you go, what, <laughs> you know, right. huh? and, and so there were, it's, and, and certainly I call upon aspects of the runes. I, I borrow, I borrow certain things, you know, uh, the the way the agglomeration of buildings and and times and things like that. Particularly in in Dunara, you were not in Dun well Dunara too, but in Ardonk, you will find yourself in places where you walk in one area and you see sort of like you will in Greece or like you will in Rome, where there were distinct changes in architecture and yep. the architecture was built for different purposes at different times. Whereas you will go to places on Histos and it's like, they're called, you know, they're called the, uh, the God, the God barriers. And uh, you don't really know, but there's stuff there, not to spoil anything for folks, which become, which makes them all the more perplexing. So the level of detail that you go into regarding the cultures and the history of the worlds of into the vortex is impressive. Uh, indeed, some knowledge that is supposed to be accepted fact from this broken world is kind of turned on its head in into the vortex. Uh, where'd this idea come from? <laughs> Living. <laughs> I mean, what, you know, I spent the first at least two decades, even three decades of my life watching people say, we're probably the only star with planets around it forever. And again, and again and again and now we're not you know it's like these these signals you know we heard this all through the 90s and then even the early aughts well these signals could be many things uh what are you gonna do with a picture you know recently we, we're imaging the damn things with the web telescope 
So there's this idea, and and to give you another idea, it was it was um, it was thought, of course, that nothing could move in space. What's called the reaction principle of of chemical thrust rockets, or any rocket that puts out a plasma against which the the next wave of plasma is pushing, which is the propulsive force, was deemed impossible. Even though you had three individuals at the same time who could not read each other's works proposing it, the most early, the earliest on the calendar. Uh, or the the dateline, the chronology would be um, uh, God. <laughs> I have another thing. Um, uh, Tsiolkovsky, Konstantin Tsiolkovsky, um, who famously wrote, um, "Earth is the cradle of humanity, but man cannot live in the cradle forever." Um, there was a Frenchman working about fifteen years later, who came up with the exact same idea. And when Charles Goddard launched his rocket, although he was the least formally educated of the bunch, this is exactly what he was saying. You still had people in after the V2 rockets were launched in World War II saying, but they can't go in space. Like, really? And then, of course, did anybody jump up and say, I'm wrong, you know, come the 50s? No crickets. And so I guess you could say that um, there's, like I said, this is why I say living. Because we we live eternally. I, I understand why people want to believe that they have knowledge. But as as um, as, a, as a, a guy by the name of um, uh, Karl Popper, who's essentially a philosopher about knowledge, said the only the only fact you can really have is a fact of negation. In other words, um, uh, you know, uh, every time I go over their house. Uh, the television is on. That's a law of nature. I've seen it again and again and again. And then you go over, it's not, oh, not a law of nature. But then, so you see a thing and you never see it disproven. You don't know if at some point, you know, or at, at some phenomenon in the universe, like the laws of gravity or this, that, or the other thing, takes a break, goes on holiday for like a microsecond. <laughs> if it does, it is not the absolute law you think it is, which is why most responsible scientists don't talk about fact. They talk about a settled hypothesis. And so this is, um, I, you, you could, I accept that I am living in a state, I accepted a life of essentially permanent cognitive dissonance, that I have to accept that certain, I have to accept as though they were law, a lot of things in my existence, but it doesn't mean they are. And I don't get to relax and I don't get to say, well, it's been 82 days since I said that's that could be a law. So now it's gonna be a law. Universe doesn't care what I freaking think. It right. doesn't care what any of us think. And I and so there's this part of me that that really is is I think invested in the ramifications of uh you know, I was about to say false certainty, but I'm not so sure that isn't almost a needlessly repetitive yeah. uh, phrase. Right. I've lost your audio. So getting away from the, the kind of theological or uh, theory of- Just so you know, Griffin, I lost your audio. Okay, is it back now? Uh, it is back now. You were you were in the process. I was, repeat, of, I was repeating myself, so we're good. Uh, or, or that's okay. And you were you were uh, you were you were feigning amusement at my last point. No, uh, no. <laughs> yeah, 
getting getting back to the to the more uh, getting away from the philosophy of what what we're talking about here in the book or the, the theory of the knowledge. Um, there's plenty of desperate action in Into the Vortex too, uh, often against varied opposition. Sometimes it's thinking adversaries or wildlife. Sometimes simply the harsh environments of desert or wastes. Um, do you map out or choreograph some of these action sequences before committing them to the page? Or oh, how do you do that? Um, I do that in a couple of different ways. Um, I don't know. There are certain things I've literally committed to a map. Um, and I look very carefully at it. Uh, I famously did that, not to anybody else, but to myself and those who are forced to listen to my writer's tales. Uh, there's a, a one of my first book that ever, I think it was the first book that, no, it wasn't the first book that came out, but it was the first book I did with Eric, who, whose birthday would, was today and we lost. Um, was there's a, a scene, there's a very, very intense close quarters combat carried out in a historical place called uh, uh, um, the, it's a castle, uh, Castel de, oh God, why can't I think of it? It's in the, it's in the shadow of the city of Palma, Belver, Castel de Belver. And, um, and I visited that tower three times. I had maps of it. And because it was such a close run thing, I needed to know how fast people could move from one place to another, what the sight lines were and what the, what the encumbrance of armor or the, just not even the encumbrance in terms of weight, but the lack of flexibility might do to some of those assumptions. So sometimes I will do that. I don't think I exactly committed it to paper on this but there have in this series but there are times when it was darn close and i knew exactly in my mind where everything was i uh, and this is the sort of thing that i have a background in both film and designing games and between the two of those you work with maps and you work with storyboards which right. are as, as anybody anybody who knows it forgive me but uh, basically before a movie is shot notionally you know what each shot is going to be because there's a little sort of a thumbnail of it that's been that a sequence of them have been written up so i i have that in my head and um it, that's essential i would say for close run battles particularly the those that turn on a key and particularly a key unexpected event right. you have to know where everybody is and how this one this this one new you know, sort of token on the board changes the conformation of the board. So that's one of the things that I do. And I, I try to make it so that the, um, you know, when when a, a, a previous editor at Bain, Tony Daniels, wanted to, uh, he said he wanted a fantasy from me. And he said, what I'm looking for is something in which every every move, every every stroke of a sword counts. It's sort of, it's, it's there, it's not. And I was, I was, totally good with that he he had reservations about the ideas that would have led to to this series but that's always kind of how i, I want to write um i don't try to detail everything you can't you you know a a single fight scene involving a half a dozen people from either side would be almost impossible to write because of the simultaneity of action and to really describe what they do why they do it how an interruptive action changes what they were thinking 0.4 seconds ago right 
good luck, but that's why we have film. That's my feeling. And even film is hard put to that because the camera can only be in one place at one moment. Right. And if you think that film catches everything that's important, no, that's why we have zoom-ins, particularly crash zoom-ins that basically say, look at this. You didn't expect that. Ah, if you don't have that, you don't understand where everything changes. And it's not, it's also not realistic. I mean, you're not mm -hmm. seated in the in one person's point of view. Uh, you're you're revolving around the combat that yeah. kind of thing. so yeah yeah having having been there and done that a few times the, the you're pretty much seated in one position and you know if you're having an out-of-body experience to witness what's going on around you <laughs> things have probably gone pretty bad for you <laughs> or you have to or it has to be valid and it has to, and this is when i think it's got to be important enough that it validates a point of view change right and if you put a point of view change in the middle of a fight my feeling as an author is I'm all about that as long as you make sure it has commensurate payoff. Right. So I, I particularly like the care that Gerard Drew Dane uh, takes with his uh, various mounts and how that care informs his actions and results. Uh, what kind of research did you do in order to present this important aspect of pre-modern travel that's frankly, <laughs> I, I feel uh, totally underrepresented in most fantasy. <clears throat> I, I had a um, I had a research expert, a uh, a daughter who at that time was in was an equestrian, who was competing quite successfully, but her interest in horses was ultimately not in the competition. It was more about them as animals. She's a she's a very very enthusiastic about wildlife in general. I had a had a huge fondness for horses and still does, and learned a whole pile about them um, through her. Um, also one of the things, just also in the course of reading, you know, because I would, I would have that same sort of feeling that you would, it's like, you know, if, if horses are just like, like cars and you can just plug in a key, like, okay, let them roam in the grass. Right. My God. I mean, if, if they eat grass, that's too wet or too loamy, they get, they get colic, you know, that that's the end of the horse that, or can be, or it's certainly the end of your adventure. Uh, unless you're carrying forward on foot, um, how they throw shoes, how often they have to eat, why why there are different food types, um, the the different things that different horses are used for, um, it's a it's you know it was uh, it's been growing it, writing in the 1632 universe. I also I also came to it there. There were a lot of people who were very very expert about horses one one was a real bona fide expert there and i paid close attention to everything she wrote um critiquing the way horses were represented by folks who didn't hadn't hadn't had the good fortune of being exposed to her expertise beforehand because she was right. also a kind of um very i don't want to say retiring but she wasn't a person who'd sort of say i know about horses i'm going to tell you everything listen up you damn fools right. um so uh so yeah yeah and it, it it also because um one of the things is i i what i'm frequently amazed at is we have these caring characters you know in fantasies and it's yeah. like ah oh, the horse died what the hell right. you know which is one of the reasons why i put a hern actually initially has a dog with him and yeah. it's a big tough dog in the first book but he says i, I can't do this hey can't keep up with the horses you know it's it, the, the horses just take us from place to place. He comes with us when we fight. Nah, I can't do this anymore. And one of the things that I'm trying to do is, is I guess, get in the way of the, um, 
and this this comes in there's a lot of stuff i've done in both books i was doing more of this in the first book was um I grew up in the age of Dungeons and Dragons. I'm old enough that I existed for 13 years before it did, um, and uh, back when it was a it was a, a closeted, um, uh, um, you know, pastime that now sort of sits and says, "We won, ha <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, um So one of the things that that I I saw so many tropes. I saw the, you know, the, the, and it, some of this is just also a, a, um, this is going to sound like a, a digression, but it's really important to why a lot of what goes on in the series goes on the way it does. Um, the number of pointless combats, uh, the, the amount of risk taken because you can be brought back from the dead or you have more hit points, whatever the hell that means. Um, you know, originally, I think when games became more skill-based um, and you got a much better representation of these things in the books for all of the flaws of, for instance, Robert E. Howard. And I don't think he had many flaws as a writer. I think he is a, a person whose cultural affinities clearly have not aged well and were unfortunate in his own time. But that doesn't mean that he could not write just exquisite um, uh, you know, imagery in his prose and also made it very clear that even the baddest warriors the baddest asses they were not eager to pick fights because a fight is a really dangerous thing it is exhausting it it is you know it is control is surrendered anything can happen a banana peel can materialize under your shoe if somebody hasn't done that in a comedy fantasy novel they should have um and so one of the things that I was doing at every step of the way was taking those tropes and turning them on their head. Um, for instance, the, the easy immortality that we see conferred to different species, and then the fact that that doesn't lead to all sorts of misunderstandings or different behaviors or how, you know, one of the things that I always found was to, to, to take on one of the, one of the, the, demi, the demi deities of, of the genre, uh, Tolkien. It is amazing to me that the elves and the humans are as similar as they are. The families are as similar as they are. Uh, that, that, that they are not made hugely complex by 19 generations of existing relatives, you know, and, and all the things that that would do. It is, you know, there's a, I guess they're magical. So they only, only reproduce every so often, or they, they, you know, they spend, they they have to get you know it takes eight years to get in the mood i don't know what the deal is but the bottom line is that it struck me that they were they were truly creatures of as you say high fantasy and i'm trying to work a little bit more i guess you could say an epic fantasy and i wanted to take because epic fantasy very often to the extent that it deals with certain real things in terms of political structures and how realms operate and how people operate in realms i wanted to pass that lens over everything and i and the funniest things to pass it over while yet nodding fondly in that direction is some of the excesses and tropes that came not out of fantasy literature, but out of fantasy gaming. And I just wanted to say, folks, you know, really think about it. Think about it. Well, that's cool. So uh, I noted a word I've only read in your Kane Riordan series, uh, reify. Is this a sign there's a connection between your science fiction universe and that of this broken world and into the vortex? What a wonderful question. <laughs> um, 
how do I best answer that? Um, the, 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 I believe it is used in reference to the first form of portal that is encountered, which is called the shimmer. And the shimmer has a variety of very, very unusual properties connected to it. They will seem arbitrary, um, perhaps. Um, I'm going to say, keep your eye on that word, keep your eye on the shimmers. And um, to say that there, you know, there's an overt connection between the, the series, I won't say yes or no, but I will say, you may find that even if the songs are not the same, there are some harmonies and certain verses rhyme. Good answer. <laughs> so uh, on a personal note, I hope you're, I, I think I heard you say you're already hard at work on the third book in the series, but I may be wrong. I hope that's true. Uh, do we have any chance of a date for such a book uh, might land? Uh, so what's happened? The, the answer would be, um, that's a, that's as complicated an answer as the politics and some, in some cases and the cosmology of, of the series uh, in that I already have a lot of that. That book is already mapped out. As a matter of fact, I actually know um, I, once again, I looked forward and I, and I spoke to Tony about this. I'm not sure I can get this. Well, it's Bane. So we know that the one thing you can be sure about a Bane trilogy, it ain't just three books. Uh, and I, I think that this will fall into that category. Um, it will need to, I think, for a number of reasons. Um, the uh, so so I've done a lot of work on that book. Um, uh, some not exactly a lot of parts that would are ready to be written, but the mapping is is fairly fairly complete at this point, and I'm really looking forward to writing that book. Um, but before it, I am in the process of completing the sixth Kane novel right now, uh, which is Endangered Species. And then um, the next one comes out in the same year, in December, I believe, uh, or maybe November, I think it's November, uh, which is um, Protected Species. After that, uh, there, in the middle of that, there's a, um, a, a novel from Murphy's Lawless that I'm doing with uh, Chris Kennedy that I've got to add about 40 or 50,000 words to. And at that point, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of things rise up that are less than certain. One is that there's um, there's a novel that I have to uh, complete uh, that uh, in in Eric Flint's Ring of Fire. Uh, so there's that, and then it's also a question of where in the work schedule um, David Weber is, because David Weber is. Um, it originally was on the uh, was was going to be a collaborator in the Kane Riordan universe for a book called Misbegotten, when Eric was another one, and and David was kind and uh, totally totally stunned me that he has now picked up both and we're going to do them in a sequence and they are related to each other very tightly. So there's um, it's uh, nothing 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 good can come of. Eric's passing, but this was one of the less of the many personal and and disasters that that is bound into his passing, which is all the books that he had yet to write, all the writers he had yes yet to help, uh, all the the compassion and magnanimity he had he had yet to use to remind the universe that you don't need to be a dick. 
Um, uh, got to put more gravel in your voice when you say that. Yeah. <laughs> you don't need to be a dick. Yeah, there you uh, go. <laughs> with the with the with the the clear you know intero bang at the end. Yeah, um, there you go. <laughs> but uh, um, is it, at least that that this this that project has found a a uh, um, if 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 it was to have a worthy home other than beneath Eric's pen, it it was happy enough to find that one with David. Very Lovers. cool. So, uh, uh, yeah. uh, penultimate question then, what aside from its uh, considerable raw entertainment value do you hope readers will carry with them long after reading Into the Vortex? It's raw entertainment value too. Um, <laughs> actually, uh, no. um, yeah. I, um, the sense that you've Here's what I hope for any book, but there are parts of this book, like there's an underground city and it ain't like an underground city you've seen before. And it doesn't come about in, I, I haven't been able to find it's exact. I mean, you have them built in caverns and things like that, but this is a little different. I hope you saw things and went to places and wondered at events that were so immersive that it was that coming that putting the book down was like waking back up into reality that is what i always hoped immersivity um and the sense that there was it wasn't just immersivity for its own sake right and i and i actually think that there's a there's a verisimilitude without a certain degree of verisimilitude and this can be high fantasy right high Things can be happening all over the place. The rules of magic are, are left under the carpet or you know down the block in a, in a garage or whatever the case may be. But at some point, emotional reaction, motivation, things that people, what are what will you what is worthwhile to you? What will you sacrifice for it? Why is something worthwhile to you? These things have to ring true. And the core verisimilitude of human experience comes out. I hope that in addition to that, you feel like you were in a place that felt real to you. So I may spend a little bit of extra time imparting the vibe, but hopefully readers will say time well spent. Yeah, I got that. Uh, so um, last question, uh, what conventions can your fans hope to catch up with you at? Got to think which one. So I'm doing one thing before this even will come out. Um, I will be at uh, next uh, Heliosphere in uh, Piscataway, New Jersey. I'm a special guest there. I will be at DragonCon. Uh, as always, I've been a guest there for years, and it's a great man. I just I, and I I always try to make sure that I I I want to say whichever one you hear about me. I am going to try to make myself as available. I want people to walk up to me. I really, I really, as I as I've said, if it wasn't very stalkery, I wish I could go around to everybody who's ever bought one of my books or personally hand deliver one sign saying thank you very much because of you, I have the coolest job in the world. So even at DragonCon, where it's madness and wall to wall people um, and maybe other things, but we can't tell beneath the costume sometimes. Um, <laughs> that uh, I'll be there. And uh, also I'm a, uh, there's a uh, con in Texas. I'm not sure the venue yet, but it's called PCON. Uh, I am, that's just the letter P dash con. 
uh, on Guest of Honor there with my friend uh, um, Jane Linskold, who's also another Bane author, also a fantasy author, uh, and of course writes with David Weber. Uh, if it has to do with tree cats, it probably has Jane's had her Jane's had her paws in it, um, <laughs> and I use paws meaningfully. Yeah. Don't I, Jane? And um, and the uh, uh, then I will be at uh, probably at Capclave in Washington D.C. and in, in I think that's the end of September. Uh, and then um, I am a, a guest now. I'm a, a guest every year at TravelerCon, which is only about 150 people, but it is if you played Traveler at any point in in your youth or graying years. It is the place to be. And Mark Miller, who was there uh, with me as the other special guest this past year, who was the 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 Godfather and uh, and Emperor uh, in disguise of the Imperium that he he uh, he created, uh, is going to be there again. So those are the ones I know about. There, I might be at Liberty Con. Uh, that has to do with schedules pertaining to school, business, and the military. Uh, and those, those, so I'm, I'm calling that a 50, 50 at this point, but I'd love to see you folks at any of them and, uh, uh, hear anything you have to say. I'm mostly interested to hear about you. <laughs> you, you saw this, you suffered through this. You already know about me. There you go. So, uh, this has been Griffin Barber in conversation with Charles E. Gannon, author of Into the Vortex, forthcoming from Bain Books. Thank you for being with us today, Chuck. Thank you so much for having me, Griffin. As always, a delight. And now we bring you Timothy Zahn's Cobra. Earth's only hope was the Cobras. The colony worlds Adirondack and Silvern fell to the troughed forces almost without a struggle. Outnumbered and on the defensive, Earth made a desperate decision. It would attack the aliens, not from space, but on the ground, with forces the troughs did not even suspect. Thus were created the Cobras, a guerrilla force whose weapons were surgically implanted, invisible to the unsuspecting eye, yet undeniably deadly. But power brings temptation, and not all the Cobras could be trusted to fight for Earth alone. Johnny Moreau would learn the uses and abuses of his special abilities and what it truly meant to be a cobra. Chris was already in the anteroom, chatting with Johnny's assistant. All set? she asked as he entered. All set? He nodded. I'm officially off duty, leaving the fate of Caravel District in Theron's capable hands. Theron, you two, grinned. With any luck, the district'll still be here when you come back, Syndic, he said. How off duty are you? I'm taking my phone, but it's going to be off, Johnny told him. You reveal the override code to anyone short of a genuine emergency, and I'll take you to Dawa District and let the Gantuas walk on you. A fate worse than debt, you two agreed solemnly. Have a good time, sir. Mrs. Morrow. Chris had left the car poised for a quick getaway, and a minute later they were driving through the moderate Rankin traffic, heading for the local air car field. Any problem with Corwin I should know about? he asked Chris. She shook her head. Tim and Sue said they can keep him overnight if we don't make it back by then. How about you? Any problems because of the other ship out there? He glanced at her. You never cease to amaze me, hun. I just heard about that a few minutes ago myself. She smiled. That is all I know, though. 
The bare fact of a second incoming ship was coming through on Theron's net as I got to the office. Is it bad news? Not as far as I know. There's a member of the Central Committee aboard who I gather wants to tour the Dominion's colonies out here. I've included myself out of any ceremonies for this next week. I wonder if the Dominion's planning to cut our supply shipments, Chris mused, or whether the Trofts are making trouble. If there's anything I need to know, Theron can find me. Johnny shrugged. Until then, let's assume the visit is just political and act accordingly. They reached the airfield a few minutes later, and a few minutes after they were heading for Capitalia at a shade under Mach 2. There had been times, a lot of them in fact, when Johnny had regretted accepting the position of syndic, of having exchanged the day-to-day -day problems of a single village for the executive headaches of an entire district. But having an aircar on permanent call was one of the spangles of the job that occasionally made it worthwhile. Not having to risk his life fighting spine leopards and folks, of course, was another big plus. The last of the starship's passengers had been down for some time when Johnny and Chris arrived at the starfield, but with processing and all, the first of them were only then beginning to emerge from the entry point building. Taking up a position off to the side, they waited. But not for long. Suddenly, Gwen Morrow was there, and Johnny, a corner of his mind still expecting the ten-year-old girl he'd left back on Horizon, nearly tripped over his tongue, calling to her, "'Gwen! Over here! Johnny!' She smiled, bounding over with an echo of the high spirits he'd always associated with her. For an instant he was tempted to respond by tossing her into the air, as he'd always done back home. Fortunately, probably, he resisted the urge. The introductions and greetings were a flurry of smiles, hugs, and general giddiness. Chris and Gwen had known each other well enough through tapes back and forth that the awkwardness Johnny had half-feared never materialized. Gwen asked about her nephew, was assured he was like any other two-year-old, except smarter, of course, and Johnny was just turning to lead the way out when she stopped him with a hand on his arm and a mischievous grin. "'Before we go, Johnny, I've got a little surprise for you,' she said. Someone I met on the ship who's going to be working in the same town I am. Her eyes flicked over his shoulder. A ship met fiancé, Johnny thought. He turned, expecting a stranger, and felt his mouth drop open. Callie! Callie Halloran's grin was a thing of truly massive proportions. Hi, Johnny. Damn, but it's good to see you. Same to you with spangles. Johnny grinned. Chris, this is Callie Halloran, one of my teammates in the Adirondack War. I thought you and Immel were planning to stay in the Army for the rest of your natural lives. Immel's still there, Halloran nodded. But you clowns out here gave the brass too many ideas of what Cobras could be used for. I finally had one Iberian Forest Patrol mission too many and put in for a transfer here. If you're expecting palace guard duty work in Dawa District, you can forget it, Johnny warned. Chances are you'll be doing jungle duty and heavy manual labor besides. Yeah, but here I'll at least be working more on my own, without some middle-level army officer looking over my shoulder. He waved a hand skyward. Or maybe even get to help open up a new world like you did. Palatine and Celian? Johnny shook his head in mild disgust. You want army thinking, there it is in spades. We've barely got a third of Aventine even surveyed, let alone settled, and they open up beachheads on two other worlds. Talk about straining resources and manpower, especially Cobra manpower. Johnny, Chris interrupted smoothly, you promised you wouldn't plunge us into Aventine's politics for at least the first hour, remember? They all laughed. 
Johnny had not in fact made any such promise, but the hint was well taken. Chris is right. I do tend to go overboard sometimes, he admitted, pointing them all toward the door. If you're all adequately tired of standing around here, let's go get some dinner. Chris and I don't get to Capitalia too often, but we know where the best restaurant is. The meal was a resounding success. The food and atmosphere of the restaurant as good as Johnny had remembered. They spent some time catching up on Halloran's and the Morrow family's recent histories, the conversation then shifting to Aventine in general, and Dawa district in particular. Johnny knew relatively little about the latter, Dawa being one of the most recently incorporated parts of the planet, and he was rather surprised to find that he and Chris still knew far more than the supposedly up-to-date information the colonists had been given. They were working on dessert and the Aventine version of cave, when Chris casually mentioned the mysterious Dominion craft coming in fast on the colony ship's wake. No mystery there, Halloran shook his head. I heard about it back on Asgard. I assumed you'd been told, too. That's Comité Vanis Darl, and some sort of special Cobra project that the Army and Central Committee have cooked up. Darl? Gwen's eyes were wide. Johnny, that's the Comité Jamie's working for. You're right. The name hadn't immediately registered, but now he remembered. Jamie had been with Darl's staff for, what, twelve years now? Any idea who Darl brought with him, Callie? Boy, you Moreaus really get around, Halloran said, shaking his head in amazement. No, I don't know who else is aboard. I only know it involves cobras because Mendro and Bai had Frere Complex tied up in knots for a month while committee people crawled all over the place. Doing what? All I heard were rumors, but they had a lot of trucks moving in and out, and parking by the surgery wing. Sounds like they're updating the Cobra equipment. Johnny frowned. Have the Trofts and Menthisti been behaving themselves? Far as I know. Maybe the Dominion's thinking about really pushing the colonization effort out here and wants to have more Cobras available. With Darl coming here for a final assessment, Johnny suggested. Could be. Uh-uh. Gwen put in warningly. That's politics, you guys. Technical foul. Chris gets a free change of topic. They all smiled, and the conversation shifted to the sorts of geological and tectonic utilization work Gwen hoped to be doing on her new world. But for Johnny, the relaxed mood of a few minutes earlier proved impossible to totally recapture. Taurus Chalinor's attempted rebellion seven years ago hadn't been repeated, but Johnny had lived those years waiting for that other shoe to drop, knowing that if Aventine could survive another few decades, the Cobras would all be dead and the society could at last get back to normal. But if the Dominion was planning to send them a new batch... But the evening, if no longer scintillating, nevertheless remained pleasant as Johnny and Chris gave the others a brief tour of Capitalia's nightlife. It was odd, though perhaps inevitable, that Johnny found himself mentally comparing everything to their hazily remembered counterparts on Asgard and Horizon. But if Gwen and Halloran found it all quaint and primitive, they were far too polite to say so. It was after midnight when they finally called it quits, and as there was no point in returning to Rankin at such an hour, they checked into one of Capitalia's small selection of hotels. Gwen and Halloran had disappeared to their rooms, and Johnny was just starting to undress when he noticed the red message-waiting light on his phone was glowing. Uh-oh, he muttered. Chris followed his gaze. Ignore it, she advised. At least until morning. Theron would have risked waking you up if it was urgent. Yes, Johnny agreed, 
almost unwillingly picking up the instrument. But he wouldn't have bothered us at all if it wasn't at least important. Might as well get it over with. The message, as he'd expected, was simply to phone his assistant whenever convenient. Johnny looked at his watch, shrugged, and made the call. You two answered promptly, without any of the grogginess that would have indicated a sound sleep. Sorry to bother you, Syndic, he apologized. But something came in on the net a half hour ago that I thought you should know about. Late this afternoon, a dead spine leopard was found in the plains a couple of kilometers west of Palin in Dawa district. It had been mauled pretty badly, and apparently not by scavengers. Johnny looked up to see Chris's suddenly tense eyes, felt his own jaw tighten. The elusive predator that even spine leopards needed defenses against had finally made its long-overdue appearance, so to speak. Any sign of what had killed it, he asked you to. There's nothing more yet than what I've told you, sir. The carcass has been taken to Niparan, where I gather they're going to bring some experts in to study it. I just thought you might want to issue some orders immediately. Yeah. Caravel District was getting more built up every day, but there were still vast tracts of forest area surrounding the towns, and if the new predator migrated like the spine leopards did, the region could have unwelcome company at any time. Put all the cobras on alert, and have them keep an eye out for any unusual tracks or signs if business takes them into the forest, he instructed you to. Everyone else is to stay out of the forest, period, and farmers working near the edges are to keep their cabs sealed. Yes, sir. I'll have these on the public net in half an hour. Um, Governor General Zhu also called this evening. He wants all the syndics at a special meeting at the Dominion Building tomorrow morning at 11. Johnny snorted. <laughs> a ceremonial brunch for the visiting comité, no doubt. I don't think so, actually, you two said. Comité Darl will be there, but it sounded a lot more important than that. The Governor General seemed preoccupied, for one thing. Anyway, I told him I'd try to get in touch with you, but I didn't promise anything. Thanks. Johnny glanced at Chris, mindful of his promise of a vacation. But her eyes were worried, and she nodded fractionally. All right, I'll try to show up. Start collecting everything that comes through on that dead spine leopard for me. We're going to want to ID its killer as fast as possible. Understood, sir. Thanks for calling. Good night. Johnny broke the connection and again shut off the phone. Looking up at Chris, he opened his mouth to apologize, but she got in the first word. Gwen and Callie are both going to Paline, she said quietly. If something that dangerous is in the vicinity, she shuddered. Should I go ahead and take them back to Rankin in the morning? Johnny sighed. Yeah, probably. No telling how long that meeting will take. Though on second thought, if I was running Dawa District, I'd probably cancel Callie's orientation week and hustle him right down to Paline for guard duty. Maybe you'd better just take Gwen and leave Callie here. If he gets his orders, I can run him down there and get a first-hand look at the spine leopard while I'm at it. And maybe join in the hunt? She held up a hand against his protests. No, I understand. I don't have to like your risking your life to know that you have to do it. Even middle-aged cobras are safer out there than younger men. Thanks a raft, he snorted. Thirty-nine is hardly middle-aged. She smiled. Why don't you quit protesting then and come to bed and show me just how young you are? Afterward, they lay side by side in the dark, and Johnny's thoughts drifted back to Adirondack. 
There, the people he cared for had always drawn back when they feared they might never see him again. Chris's response to the same situation was far more pleasant, though the underlying reality wasn't any easier to face. Still, he'd faced danger a thousand times before. Even Chris should know by now that he was too lucky to get himself killed. But his dreams that night were frightening things, centering around a giant creature that walked in haze, killing spine leopards and cobras, and disappearing without a trace. That was another installment in Timothy Zahn's Cobra, and that's it for the podcast. Thanks, as always, to Audible.com and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. Praise, thanks, and gratitude to Charles E. Gannon and good night, Tony Daniel, wherever you are. This is David F. Shirod coming to you from a soundproof bunker somewhere deep in the heart of Texas. Join us here next week at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.